0: Uh, If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter. We'll be in chapter 5. We're wrapping up uh, this letter this morning. uh, We'll be looking at verses 6 through 14 as we come to the close of Peter's letter. And so if you have your Bibles, turn there with me. And if you're able, would you stand as we read from this portion of God's Word? Pay careful attention. This is the word of God. 1 Peter 5, starting in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God, Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love, peace to all of you who are in Christ. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. You may be seated. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your word, for its life-giving power, for the ways that it speaks to our hearts, exposes our needs, uh, and draws us to Jesus. We pray that you would do that this morning. You might grant us understanding, that you would build us up in our faith, convict us of sin, and assure us that there is grace for us in the good news of Jesus, crucified and risen for sinners. And so we pray, Lord, that you would teach us this morning by your Spirit, and in all things help us to see Jesus, for we pray in his name. Amen. Uh, This is a passage about hope. Hope is a powerful force in a person's life. Uh, You know as well as I that the presence of hope can produce remarkable resilience through life's storms. At the same time, the absence of hope can make even the slightest disappointment feel like unbearable devastation. Peter's final words here in his letter focus on the ultimate hope that Christians have, the hope that one day God will restore all that has been broken by sin, including us, and that he will bring comfort to every grief. And it's a hope that Peter points to as a way of encouraging endurance on our, on our part. Encouraging endurance and faithfulness and a loving witness to the good news of the gospel. Uh, it's hard for me to think of anything more pressing right now than the need for hope. For us here as a, as a body of believers as well as for a world that seems to be swimming in hopelessness. In the Bible, hope is connected to our lives here in the present. Hope motivates and empowers uh, the life of faith here and now. There's a great illustration of this aspect of hope uh, in my current favorite Star Wars movie of the new ones, not of the old ones. Um, Two different things. Uh, Star Wars Rogue One, which is a movie all about hope. It tells the story of a small ragtag bunch of rebels, of course, aiming to overthrow the tyrannical empire. They face impossible odds. They face an enemy with vastly more resources than they have. Uh, And as one of the rebels lays out this impossible plan to attack an imperial base and steal some information from there... Uh, One of the rebels lays out this plan. Another leader questions it and says, you're asking us to invade an imperial installation based on nothing but hope, to which the answer comes, rebellions are built on hope. They're motivated and empowered for this bold move against evil based on hope that it will work, that it must work, that good will prevail. That same kind of dynamic undergirds Peter's closing words. He concludes this letter not with a call to rebellion. Uh, The the victory has been won through what Jesus has done. Uh, He has conquered. So it's not a call to rebellion, but a call to faithful resistance built upon hope. Our future hope motivates and empowers our present life of faith. And this is a variation on a melody that Peter has been playing throughout the letter. And so this morning, I want us to look at two things, despite what your outline says. I want us to look at two things, even though the second thing has four things, but we'll get there. Uh, first, I want us to look at what what is this hope? And then secondly, what does resistance look like? What does faithful resistance look like? So first, what is this hope? Uh, let's talk generally first about hope, because everyone hopes. Everyone has some hope, but not everyone has real hope. Uh, Hope can be described in different ways. It's an eager anticipation, an eager expectation that what is wrong will one day be made right. We all kind of operate with what we might call micro-hopes, probably more uh, precisely defined as wishes or desires. Um, You know, I hope that it won't rain tomorrow, that kind of micro-hope. But when the Bible talks about hope, it's not talking on that micro-level. It's talking big-picture macro hope? Where do I place the weight of my life? Um, where do I find my ultimate identity? That's when the Bible talks about hope. Those are the questions that it's answering for us. There are false hopes and there are true hopes. So everybody's got hope. Some hopes are true. Some hopes are false hopes. And in the Bible, false hopes are called idols. These are the the people the things, the dreams that we place the weight of our lives on that were never meant to carry that weight. And when they fail, because they can't help but fail, they're not made to carry that weight. When they fail, we fail with them. That's that's false hope. So what do we mean by hope, this true hope that we have in the gospel? There's different ways to get at it. And, and you, I hope it's one of those words that you kind of, You can feel it more than you can define it sometimes. I mean, I hope you can feel it. But it's it's sometimes hard to kind of put your finger on it. So let me just kind of take a shot. Hope is that unignorable sense that things are not okay, coupled with the longing for things to be okay. You can think about it as the twin side of lament. We have sorrow because things are not right, but that sorrow is itself a hope that things will one day be made right. You see this in the book of Lamentations, which Jeff read for our call to worship earlier. It's the one place in Lamentations where Jeremiah expresses very clearly hope. But right before that, he talks about the bitterness of his soul and, and how bad things are. And then he turns and he says, but I have hope in God's mercy. So it's lament coupled with the desire, the expectation that the lament will one day end. It's like the proverb says, uh, even in laughter, the heart is sad. Our lives are mingled with this reality of grief and joy, laughter and sadness, humiliation and exaltation. Hope can be um, seen in the woman in Luke, that Luke tells us about in his gospel who had a hemorrhage of blood for 12 years and who thinks, if I can just get close enough to Jesus and touch the hem of his garment, I'll be made well. I'll be healed. That's hope. Hope is is staring in the face of what looks like a losing battle and believing still that God's promises are true, that he will prevail. In the Bible, in the whole story of redemption, hope is rooted in the cross and resurrection of Christ as the fulfillment of all that God has promised uh, throughout the old covenant, looking ahead to his redemption. That's why in our faith, Hope is certainty. It's not just wishful thinking. It's not just possibility. Because in the cross and resurrection of Jesus, God has undone the very root of all sorrow in the world. He's gone all the way down to the bottom. He's condemned sin in his own flesh in Jesus at the cross. And by his resurrection, sin has been dethroned and put to death uh, in this world. And Jesus is now at work pushing back against the corruption of sin, and one day we'll put it completely to an end. Or you might say it this way. We have hope because Christ has gone all the way to the root of what's wrong with the world and what's wrong with us, and he has overcome it by his sacrificial love, his self-giving love. So when we talk about hope, what we're talking about is the end game. Uh, We're talking about the final consummation of God's plan of redemption, which has already started in the resurrection of Christ. The Bible calls this the new creation. It calls it the new heavens and the new earth, the resurrection, the new Jerusalem. There's lots of ways to describe it. Uh, But for our purposes today, the way one writer describes hope is this. It's the experience within yourself of the presence of the future. Jesus has brought the future here and now through his resurrection, and hope is our experience of that future in our lives now. Peter, at the beginning of this letter, called it a living hope. It's real life. It's part of your life now. It's not wishful thinking. It's certainty. Peter highlights this hope in verse 10, which I think is kind of the climax of the letter, even though he closes it with these closing remarks about Sylvanus and Mark Uh, in the church in Babylon, which is Rome. Uh, Really, the high point of his closing of his letter is verse 10. Notice what he says. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Peter gives us four verbs in this verse to summarize our hope, and all of them together paint a picture of total renewal, from sin and all of its effects, bodily, spiritually, the whole package will be uh, restored, put together, made right in the end. But the first word Peter uses captures it well, and that's, that's the only one I want to look at for just a moment. Peter says that God himself will restore you. The word here that he uses for restore is the same word that's used for like mending nets, which Peter would have spent some time doing as, as a fisherman. You know, you use your net, it gets used up, you got to fix it. you got to mend it so you can keep u- uh, using it. You can't just go to the local bait and tackle store and grab another net. You know, they've got these things, they got to keep them in good condition. Peter here is telling us that our hope is that one day God himself, God will do it. It's not up to you. God himself will fully mend you from all that sin has broken in your life and in the world. So maybe think about it this way. Uh, I told the Sunday school class that I was being a little invasive, so I'm going to be invasive again. You don't have to say anything out loud. You just think about this for a second. I I want you to consider silently that thing about yourself that you wish was different. Okay, and I'm not talking about your appearance, okay, because that's gonna change regardless of what you want. (laughs) It's just going to. I'm talking about your heart. What is it about the way your heart operates under the continued presence of sin, the influence of sin? What is it about the way your heart operates that you think, that makes you think, I can't stand it when I do this? I can't stand it when I think this. I hate. When I say this, whatever it is, you, you know what it is. Uh, you might do something the next day. You're just riddled with, con- you're consumed with whatever it was that you did. Or you're lying down in bed and you're thinking about the day, and the things that you said or thought. You know, Why did I do that? That's, that's what I want you to think about. Maybe it's a critical spirit. You're always judging. You're always critical of others. Maybe you condemn yourself for the smallest infraction uh, you have no grace towards yourself. Uh, maybe you have a biting tongue. Uh, you, you, you're sharp. You can cut other people down. Maybe you're bitter and you struggle to forgive and you don't like that, which you shouldn't. Maybe you lust and your lust is overpowering your self-control and you hate it. Perhaps you're envious. Um, we could go on. <laughs> what are the characteristics Uh, What characteristic way does sin express itself in your life? The thing that you know about yourself that you wish, I wasn't like this. Sometimes you feel like you don't know how to do anything differently, that you'll never change, that you're just stuck in a rut. And Peter is here telling us, one day you'll be mended. One day that broken piece of you that part of you that you long to be different, long to be rid of, Peter says that and everything else that sin has impacted in your life will be mended. You'll be restored from what has been broken. Or to put it another way, you'll be like Jesus. You won't know how to be selfish anymore. Your words will be full of grace without fail. You'll know how to love other people in all the ways that you're supposed to without that second guessing uh, that we often engage in. Was I selfish? Or sometimes you just know you were. That's our hope. That God will make all things right. The resurrection is the beginning of that and Christ's return and that final resurrection will be the completion of it. That hope, that is the Christian hope. And there's no other religion, there's no other philosophy, there's no other way of life that offers that kind of hope that says the ultimate problem with you and with the whole world has been fixed. It's been addressed perfectly by Jesus, by somebody else. He's done it all, and you get to get in on it through faith, accepting it, receiving it for yourself, and then you're given this incredible hope, and we wait, we wait for it, we long for it. And we're called to live now in the light of who we will be on that day. Sin will be utterly destroyed in us and in the world. And Jesus is at work now bringing that hope to bear in our lives. And he calls for us to have faithful resistance built on that hope. You don't have to attain it. It's been done for you. Now you get to live in response to it. That's good news. What does this resistance look like? And here's the four things. I'll try to be concise with them, but here's the four things. First, uh, a humble acceptance of God's plan. A humble acceptance of God's plan. Notice verse 6. Peter again uh, highlights humility. He says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Why does he say that? Peter's recognizing here that the blessing, the fruit that we get from enduring suffering is not an automatic thing. It's not a gumball machine. You pop in the quarter, turn the knob, and then out comes the gumball. Are those even around anymore? I don't know if we even have gumball machines, but you you get the point. It's not automatic. It's not just a given that if you suffer, you're going to experience the spiritual blessings of suffering. It's not an automatic that you're going to endure, which is why scripture constantly calls us to endure, to faithfully suffer for the sake of Jesus with joy. It's not an automatic thing that you're going to do that and then get the benefit of it. And so Peter calls us to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, which is another way of saying, accept that this is from God's hand, that he is wise and good and kind, and that he is bringing whatever this is into your life for good and holy purposes. You can trust him. You don't have to kick against it. Uh, You don't call him into question, but we simply submit to his plan and trust him. We have a responsibility in how we react to our circumstances. And the right response is that of faith and submitting to God's providence in our lives. So that means, on the one hand, we don't have to wallow in self-pity; we don't have to wallow or sink into despair. But we can trust God in the midst of whatever our circumstances is are. However, His mighty hand is upon us. On the other hand, it means we don't have to act like there's no suffering. We don't have to dismiss it or deny it or act like it's not real. we can trust God with it. We can acknowledge it and accept it from God's hand. We can say to the Lord, I don't always understand your ways, but I know that you're good and wise and I will trust you in this. And this this humility does something to us. It leads us to the second part of resistance, which is casting our cares upon the Lord. Casting our cares upon the Lord. Notice verse 7 One of my favorite verses, um, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. What does humility look like? Uh, It looks like trusting God with the burdens that we carry. Uh, It's casting our cares on the God who cares for us. It's not just saying I accept this from you. It's also saying I trust you to carry this weight with me and sometimes for me when I can't carry it myself. I'm thankful that the translation here says casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Uh, We live in anxious times. Bear with me for a second. Just recently, the Sesame Street character Elmo uh, asked this question on Twitter or the app formerly known as Twitter. I don't know how to talk about it anymore. Uh, Elmo asked this question on Twitter. Elmo's just checking in. How is everybody doing? The question generated over 9,000 responses to a puppet, most of which revealed that people are not okay. Elmo, I'm depressed and broke. Elmo, I've been laid off. Elmo, I'm anxious about the election. This is my favorite one. One person said, Elmo, each day the abyss we stare into grows a unique horror. Our inevitable doom, which once accelerated in years or months, now accelerates in hours, even minutes. However, I did have a good grapefruit earlier. Thank you for asking. <laughs> People are in need of hope, and a good grapefruit just won't cut it. Oops. Now, uh, many, many have said that we are in an epidemic of anxiety. That's, I think that's probably right. Children are anxious, young people are anxious, adults are anxious. You've got personal cares, family cares, anxiety about the future, anxiety about the past, worries about the present. If you spend any time watching the news, which I would advise you to limit, uh, you'll likely feel anxious. I mean, just look at what's going on. You can't help but uh, have this feeling of anxiety, concern, of worry about what's going on in the world with our own nation, and all the other nations. It's easy to be consumed with worry these days. I think our cat is anxious. Every morning he acts as if his daily meal is an existential crisis. Will the hand that fed me yesterday feed me today? And every day I feed him and I say to him, Dabbo, you know that Carly, Karis, and Piper love you and that Barrett and I tolerate you. <laughs> You know that I will feed you and water you today, multiple times. You don't have to be anxious at 5 a.m. And yet, it's like he doesn't understand what I'm saying to him. He won't trust me even though I've proven my trustworthiness and my care time and time again. What is the deal with this cat? We're not so different, are we? We bear burdens, we bear our care, sometimes to the point of physical symptoms, the knot in your stomach, the headache that won't go away. We struggle to believe that God cares. And so here he is, meeting you with an astounding promise and a gracious invitation. I care for you. Give me your burdens. Throw them on me, like the disciples throwing their coats on the donkey that Jesus sat on as he rode into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, just tossing them upon him. The thing that leaves you sleepless, those things, throw them on God, all of them. The things that you try not to think about and can't help it, throw them on God, all of them. Instead of bearing your cares by yourself and being consumed with worry, trust God with them. Why? Because he cares for you. It's the answer to the disciples' question when they're in the boat with Jesus and the waves are breaking in, threatening to sink it. Don't you care that we're perishing? It's the answer to the questions we ask when we feel the pressure of anxiety and worry over our burdens. Lord, don't you care? Don't you see me? If you're going to trust someone with your burdens, you need to know that they care for you. Why do you think over 9,000 people responded to a puppet on Twitter? Because he expressed care. He asked the question, what's up? How you doing? But he's he's a puppet. And there's people asking that question. God's not a puppet. God's care for you, Christian, is immeasurably more than you can imagine. And he's not only willing, but able to bear your burdens. Many years ago, the Scottish pastor, Samuel Rutherford, wrote a letter to a dear friend expressing this merciful truth. I love this letter, and so I've shared it with you before. His friend's daughter had recently died, and he speaks to her about the heaviness she's carrying from that grief, and he describes it as the cross that she was now bearing. And then he says to her, you know that the weightiest end of the cross of Christ that is laid upon you lies upon your strong Savior. Jesus bears it with you. And that's it, the cross, the ultimate proof that God cares for you that he would give his own son and how will he not also with him freely give us all things this is a remedy for all of our cares to cast them on the God who cares for us now we should point out this doesn't mean you lose your burdens they're gone life is all good Um, and so forth doesn't mean you should not care about life not feel that that's okay uh The goal is not to remove all of those things all of a sudden, act as though they don't exist. The main thing is this, uh, am I acting as if I'm the only one watching over my cares? Am I acting as if I'm the only one bearing the weight of those burdens, or do I trust that the good shepherd, who loved me and gave himself up for me, is more watchful and caring for me than I even am for myself? These last two will go a little bit quicker. It's not just the internal angst that weighs us down. There are external threats as well. So we humbly accept God's plan. We cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. And then third, we stay alert against our adversary. We stay alert against our adversary. Notice verses eight and nine. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. Uh, We need to have self-control over the way we think about life as a way of guarding our faith. In particular, we have to stay alert here to the prowling of our adversary, the devil. Uh, Peter knew the importance of resistance to the devil. He also knew the effects of failure to resist. He knew that intimately. Before Peter's denial, Jesus told him, you're going to deny me, and he described it as Satan asking uh, for Peter so that he could sift him like wheat. You know, just shake him. Uh, Peter knew what that was like. And at the same time, Jesus promised in that prediction that he would also pray for him and restore him. So Peter speaks to us as one who's gone through the fire of failure and been restored on the other end by God's grace, uh, which I think we could all appreciate. We often uh, don't know what to think. So Peter's talking about our minds here and what we think. We often don't know what to think about the devil. I think we can say that frankly. Uh, there's not an abundance of information in the scripture. Uh, I mean, there's, there's information, but there's not a ton. So we kind of fill in the gaps, and often we fill in the gaps with wrong things. Uh, sometimes we attribute too much power to Satan. You know, we think he lies behind every adversity, behind every calamity, behind every natural disaster. We sometimes even think, He lies behind our falling into sin. We'll say the devil made me do it. That's attributing too much power to him. God brings calamity. God brings natural disaster. God brings adversity. He's sovereign. Satan is not. You sin. You make the choice. We're responsible. Sometimes we attribute too little power to him. We treat him as non-existent. It's like that line from the movie, The Usual Suspects. The greatest trick the devil ever played was convincing the world that he didn't exist. Peter highlights here he's an adversary. He's against you. He's a defeated adversary. The cross and the resurrection have rendered powerless him who holds the power of death. He won't win, but he's an adversary no less. He's against you, which raises the question, how is he against you? He's against you in temptation and accusation, and in so doing, he's aiming to devour your faith. It's what he eats, if you will. It's a great example of this in Pilgrim's Progress, which some of us are reading on Friday mornings. Christian, the main character in the story, is on his way to the celestial city, and one of the paths he has to travel on his way there, uh, along that path he faces this giant beast called Apollyon, the destroyer. Uh, it's kind of an emissary of Satan. And in this interaction that Christian has with this giant dragon, uh, you see this kind of back-and-forth conversation. The dragon approaches Christian, he's like, hey, I know you, you used to be on my side, and now you've, you've left. And Christian says, that's right, I've left. I serve a greater prince now. And, and the devil says, hey, look, just come on back. All will be forgiven, everything will be fine. Just, I know you left in haste, but you can come back to my side, it'll be okay. And Christian says, no way, I'm not doing that. The prince I serve now is greater than you are. And then uh, the devil begins to accuse Christian, and he's, you know, he's been all nice and kind of flattery at the beginning, uh, flattering him at the beginning, and then he says, uh, you know, your prince won't come to rescue you. He knows all your failures, he knows all the ways that you have failed him, and he like points out some of the specific ones. He begins to accuse him, he begins to shame him, and there's this epic battle that eventually Christian prevails in with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. What's Satan trying to do in this interaction? What is he aiming to do with God's people? He's seeking to devour faith. To convince you that sin is not forgivable, to convince you that uh, shame should dominate you rather than the love of God in Jesus Christ, uh, to convince you that you'll never be good enough, uh, forgetting that Jesus has been good enough in your place. He's always attempting to devour faith. That's what he did to Job, right? It's not about the physical afflictions with Job. Uh, that, That wasn't the main thing that Satan was after. What was Satan after in afflicting Job in that story? I think we see it in Job's wife and her response, kind of unwittingly acting as the voice of Satan when she tells Job, curse God and die. You see, Satan was not simply trying to kill Job, he wanted him to sin, to forsake God as a result of suffering. And so Peter, as one who did not stand firm always, encourages us to resist, to stand firm in our faith, to believe God's word of grace above the deceit of Satan. And James reminds us, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And to do that, you must arm your minds, your whole way of thinking with truth. Let's look at this fourth act of resistance. Uh, we give and find courage through shared struggle. Notice in verse 9, Peter points out this shared experience of suffering among what he calls the brotherhood, which is just another way of talking about the church at large. Um, he says, resist the devil, uh, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings that you're facing are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the whole World. Now, why does he mention other Christians and their suffering uh, in this passage? I think he simply wants us to remember that we're not alone uh, in our struggles. There's encouragement in that. Not just that others are suffering, but that others are surviving. That others are holding fast to Christ who holds fast to us. They're making it through, and that's encouraging to us, which means we survive, if we faithfully endure, that's encouraging to others who are suffering as well. Sometimes suffering makes us feel alone. Sometimes we isolate ourselves. We bend inward. And what we really need in those moments is solidarity and mutual love among believers. And so Peter's encouraging that. Remember, you're not alone in this. There's a whole brotherhood of people who belong men and women, boys and girls who belong to Jesus, who are enduring these similar things. God's at work in them, God's at work in you. You can support one another. And haven't you ever had that experience? Someone asks you what's going on in the heat of the battle, you share your heart with them and they say, I've been where you are. I know what you're going through. Don't give up. God is faithful. And it's like a breath of fresh air. It's like their faith and their hope adds fuel To your tank, which may be low or empty. This fellowship of suffering with other believers, though, is not simply a sharing of misery. Uh, One writer says that misery may love company, but joy craves a crowd. When we joyfully endure trials for the sake of knowing Christ more with other believers, uh, it, it attracts that crowd. It's like marriage our burdens are divided and our joys are doubled. So there's this mutual responsibility in the body of Christ when it comes to our suffering. It's like a back-and-forth groundswell of faith-strengthening testimony when we share our burdens with each other, when we remember there are others experiencing the same kinds of struggles that we are facing, and then we can cling to the hope of Christ together as we face those burdens. What does hope-based resistance look like? It looks like humility leavened with hope, It looks like trusting the good shepherd to lovingly watch over us and carry our burdens. It looks like an alertness of faith when we're assaulted by the adversary. And it looks like bearing one another's burdens. And we do all of this as we anchor our hearts in the hope after you have suffered a little while. The God of all grace, who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ, will will himself restore, confirm, strengthened, and established you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. If you're a believer, just make a couple points of application for you Christians. One day the Father will completely renew you, and you'll be like Jesus, his beloved Son, from the inside out. Uh, it's certain the work which he began in you he will bring to completion upon the, at the day of Christ Jesus. He's doing that work now as you share in Christ's suffering, as you share in the power of Jesus' resurrection. Therefore, you can face everything with hope, with hope, with certainty that Christ will hold fast to you, that he is at work in you now, and that one day he will right all the wrongs. Every affliction you face, every burden you carry, every assault from the adversary, every time you joyfully and honestly walk in repentance, every joy, every blessing, every bit of laughter, every kindness you receive, all of this is God's way of preparing you for the hope that is to come, breaking the bondage that we have to sin and giving us a deeper longing for the glory that will be revealed. And that's hope at work right now as you walk by faith. And as you cling to that hope, as you resist evil and live a life of love, especially, not just only, but especially through affliction, you're saying to other believers and to the world around you, the gospel is true. Jesus really is alive, that he really has conquered sin and his death and his resurrection, and he really has secured for us an eternal hope that will not fail. Let that fuel your faithful resistance until you see your Savior Face to face. If you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, what does this mean for you? I'd like for you to think about these two uh, areas where Peter uh, highlight that Peter highlights in this closing of his letter: your burdens and your hope. Your burdens and your hope. I think it's no coincidence that this epidemic of anxiety. Uh, Which ought to generate immense compassion in in us and a desire to understand that this epidemic of anxiety is happening in a time where the world is more and more secularized. And what I mean by that is we're being given a message that your life is an accident. Just evolutionary soup that turned into people somehow, but it doesn't have any real meaning, it's just an accident. That your the beginning of your life is an accident that when you die, that's it. Nothing, you go to the worms, that's it afterwards. And then we're being told at the same time, find meaning in your life. Because nobody's honest enough to say that if the beginning of your life is an accident and the end of your life is meaningless, that your life now is meaningless. If, if that's the reality, you accept, which you shouldn't because it's not true. But if, that, if the beginning and the end is meaningless... Everything in between is two, and yet you're being told, find meaning, find joy, find satisfaction here and now, and you can't do it. No wonder it's producing this immense anxiety because you can't find the thing that you're looking for, and you're trying to carry all the burden of that yourself. There's a God who cares for you, He made you, He gives you meaning, He, he spoke the world into existence, and then He made people in his own image, to love him, to know him, to live with him in fellowship forever. Your life has meaning, and God cares for you. And if you're looking for meaning outside of that, it's not going to work, and it's going to produce anxiety, and you're going you're to search for any answer to bear that burden. When God is saying to you, just like I say to my cat, God is saying to you, I care for you. You can trust me. I love you. I gave my son for you. And I give you hope, which is the second part. Where's your hope? What what are you placing the weight of your life upon? And are you experiencing the disappointment that comes with seeing that it can't carry that weight? Jesus can carry the weight. He carried the cross for you. He broke the back of death and sin in his death and resurrection. He can carry it, and he wants to. And he calls you to come and to believe to trust him, to cast all your cares on him, to know that there's a hope, that one day he will make all things new, including you. Come to Jesus. Find your hope in him. In the movie The Shawshank Redemption, the main character, Andy Dufresne, escapes from jail. And when his friend, uh, Red, who was still in jail, gets out, Andy had told him to go to a certain tree and to dig below that tree and to find a box where Andy had left some money for Red so that he could go make a life for himself. And in the box with the money Red found after he was released from prison, uh, he found this letter, this note from Andy, and Andy tells Red, Red, always remember, hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. Our hope is the best thing. Because Jesus has conquered death, never to die again, and he gives us a hope that is unbreakable by anything in this world. Hope in God, and let that hope fuel faithful resistance. Amen. Let's pray.